Welcome to the After Doubt workshop, and hopefully all of you have received a book. If you have not received a book when you entered and would like one, uh, raise your hand, and after I'm finished praying, I'll see that you get one on the way out. Our guest uh, speaker today is A.J. Swoboda, and many of you know him. I want to pray over this workshop, you know you're here for a reason. And the word, the prophetic word that AJ has for us is going to help us in many conversations. And so we need the openness of our heart, the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and the Holy Spirit to give us not just words, but a heart for uh, people that are going through this process. And so, Lord, we look to you because we are in great need of an impartation of your Holy Spirit to each of us. And as A.J. speaks, Lord, may we hear the words of heaven. May we hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us as individuals. May we walk in humility and repentance in every area and way. And then may we lead others into a growing, vibrant love relationship with you as we have found that love relationship with you and reflect that uh, wonderful heaven relationship. We love you, Lord, and we are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome AJ. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Marvelous. Uh, well, good morning. I'm really happy that uh, you, you are here and have taken time to come and join us. In fact, I see a couple uh, double dippers who are back from yesterday. And if you uh, came to have an argument with me afterwards, I'd love that. That'd be terrific. Uh, so come chat with me. I'm just kidding. Nobody's going to argue. Uh, but I do see some folks back and, and maybe you brought your team and I'm overjoyed that you are here. Um, I, will, I just want to make a brief, couple brief comments. First of all, uh, the books. Um, I feel really sheepish that you're all getting a free book today because uh, it makes it look like uh, I'm being generous, and I'm not. Uh, I don't know how you got these. Uh, somebody got them and brought them to give to you, and so whoever that secret person was, I want to say thank you to them. Um, uh, and, yeah. No. Um. Uh, I as well, uh, yesterday, uh, had the opportunity to share what I'm going to share today, and I did get one uh, sharp rebuke, and that was that there was somebody who said they couldn't hear me very well. And if you find that that's the case throughout, would some of you, I don't know, uh, just maybe a thumbs up or something like that, that will be our universal sign. Uh, are you having a hard time even right now hearing? Oh, is that true? Interesting. Huh, okay. I'll just hold it as close to my face as I can, and that'll, Lord willing, do the thing that it's supposed to do. Is that better? Even just that little? Okay, perfect. Okay. Um, I'm going to invite you to do something a little funky today. Uh, this, this may f make you feel uncomfortable. It may trigger some of you, uh, and I'm, I'm wildly comfortable with doing that with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, if you can, um, would you turn your notifications off on your phone? Uh, and the, the rationale behind that is, uh, to me, it would seem profoundly odd uh, to fly all the way to Orlando to be in a room talking about the people that we serve and care for and not be in the room to hear how we can serve and care for those people that we're texting with. So I'm going to ask you to do that for our sake of just being present together for the next hour. Our timeline uh, is I'm going to share for about 50 minutes, and my 
Lord willing, we're going to have some time for Q&R at the end, because what we're going to talk about today, by experience, is going to bring up some questions for you, and is going to raise some pastoral concerns that likely you're going to need to um, begin to address in a, in a unique way. You're going to notice up on the screen, uh, I'm titling our t- today's talk, uh, I'm calling it After Doubt, which is the title of the book that uh, came out last year uh, with Brazos Press. Uh, but the subtitle, I've changed. Um, I want to take... Uh, this conversation likely that you've heard of about uh, this big D word, deconstruction, doubt, and I want to to ask a series of questions about what does it mean to pastor people that are walking through doubt and who are deconstructing their faith, okay? This is going to be a different conversation than just pastoring just about anybody because uh, pastoring somebody who is walking through these experiences is a very different experience than pastoring just about anybody else. Uh, two things I want to say at the beginning. The first is this. I'm going to ask you if you would please put aside anything you think you know about the word deconstruction from TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. For a few moments, would, would you leave those bags at the door and let us have a fresh conversation about this without the baggage of you assuming that by me talking about deconstruction, I am somehow trying to get people to abandon the Bible, uh, change their views on sexuality, and abandon historic Christianity. I want to begin by saying I am committed with all my heart to Orthodox Christianity. Jesus is the only way to God. The church really matters. The Bible is the Word of God and we start messing things up when we change what we think about sexuality. If that's not crystal clear for you, of lowering your blood pressure, I don't know what else to do for you, okay? So can you trust me that I'm not a sheep in wolf's clothes and that I'm being truthful with that? Okay, the second thing I wanna say is I'm going to bet for many of us in the room, a conversation about deconstruction is not an abstract conversation. These are your kids. These are your worship leaders. These are the folks in your college group. And I'm going to bet, even by saying that word deconstruction, there is an image of somebody that comes into your mind. Is that equally accurate? Okay. Terrific. I want to tell you a story. Uh, about a young man named Phil, and I, I'll warn you, the, the, the story of Phil, I have changed some of the details about Phil's life for, uh, for posterity's sake. Uh, I have permission to share uh, details, some details of his story, but not the whole thing. I have changed some of them to, to generalize it. Uh, but I want to tell you a story about a, a young man named Phil. Uh, for the better part of 10 years, I was a, uh, in college ministry in Eugene, Oregon, on the campus in the University of Oregon. Uh, for 10 years, I was a church planter in the heart of urban Portland, Oregon, where I pastored in what is the most progressive secular uh, zip code in, uh, in America. And then for the last three years, I have served as a university professor at Bushnell University, where I'm a, uh, the associate professor of Bible and theology. Why that's important for you? is I'm not showing my credentials off. Why that's important for you is to understand that for the last 24 years of my life, I've sat in the front row in watching young people who are raised in the church grow up into the world. And when you sit in the front row long enough, you begin to see some patterns. You begin to see some similarities in in stories. And, And so... In, in a way, the, the story I'm going to tell you here about a young man, young man named Phil is not a story about a person. It's, it's actually a story about a lot of people. Uh, 
A number of years ago, I was pastoring in Portland, and I, I received an email from a guy named Phil who said that he had just moved uh, to Oregon uh, from middle America. He had been raised in a conservative Christian uh, home in Kansas and wanted to come to uh, Portland because he got a tech job at one of the big tech firms in Portland. So he is just jazzed to be in Portland. And he sends an email. The subject line says something like, I want to plug into the church, something like that. And we meet for coffee in my office. So we're sitting in my office, and he tells me a story, raised in a Christian home, loves Jesus, loves the Bible, loves God. And he is so on fire to be on mission in Portland. He wants to come to Portland and just be like a missionary for God. He's going to work in the tech firm. He wants to see revival. He wants to pray. He wants to be on a sound team. He is so jazzed to be at our church. And I am so jazzed he's at our church because we needed volunteers. <laughs> we were a church plant. We were hungry for young people to partner with us. It was, it was, a, it was a perfect divinely orchestrated fit. And so we are orchestrating, we're, we're you know, coming up with plans, how can you partner with the church, he wants to be on the sound team, he wants to be on mission, all this stuff, he's going to be a part of a small group. He's on fire for Jesus. And I remember as he's leaving my office, just being so excited, he was here. God was bringing people to Portland to reach uh, the, the city of Portland. I was so excited. And I remember seeing him, we said goodbye, and I remember seeing him the next Sunday he came to church, but I began to notice after that Sunday that he kind of disappeared just slowly sort of tapered off uh, in, his, in his presence, which, you know, as a pastor of a growing church, it was really hard. I, if I'm candid and I feel ashamed of this, I forgot about him. And, you know, none of us want to forget people that we pastor, but it's impossible to remember everybody. And so I, I sort of forgot about him until nearly, it was almost a year to the day, I received an email from Phil again. And the subject line was very different. We need to meet. And the body of the text says, it's been a year, Pastor, and I'd love to meet with you again. And so we're sitting in my office, nearly the exact same orientation of the office. We're both drinking the same coffee, not the same cup, but it's the same place of coffee. We're sitting there drinking coffee together, and he walks me through what has happened in one year, in one year of living in Portland. He describes to me that when he moved into Portland, he, at first he loved coming to church because, you know, he was excited to be in Portland and be on mission. But he said the first thing that he experienced in this new church was he experienced this feeling that he wasn't known because he had been raised in a church where he, everybody knew him by name. And so when he would come to church, it would be like this reminder that he wasn't, he wasn't known anymore, which brought up shame and sadness he just, and, and homesickness. And then after that, he got a roommate, and one of, the, one of the guys that he worked with in the tech firm named Charles uh, had been raised a Mormon and in college had a philosophy class and had become a secular humanist, a, an atheist. And Charles and him became roommates, and at night, he told me, what they would do is they would just sit up at night and talk about, you know, philosophy, and they'd listen to Joe Rogan podcasts and, you know, like, just talk about, you know, faith and Bible. And what struck Phil was how much of the Bible Charles knew. He'd been raised a Mormon. Mormons know their Bible real well. And he, he said, like, Charles knew everything that was not only, he not only knew the Bible, but he, quote, knew everything that was, quote, wrong with the Bible, too. The process by which the Bible had been put together and how it's not trustworthy and the manuscripts aren't faithful and, and you can't know what's true and what's not true. And he said, but he said the hardest part about faith, the, the hardest part about Charles, was that he was an atheist, but he was so ridiculously thoughtful and kind. 
And he said, when you are raised in a Christian environment where they tell you that atheists like wake up in the morning and barbecue kittens, <laughs> you know, right? When you're raised in a worldview that says like atheists are like really mean, horrible people, and then you meet a really generous, kind atheist, it messes with everything you thought you knew. So he says, that was like really hard for me. And so every night we would sit up and just talk about everything, the Bible, gender, sexuality, history, uh, uh, faith, theology. And he says, it wore on him because Charles knew way more than I did. But he didn't, Phil had nobody to talk to. And so Phil says his life, his description was, my life became one big podcast binge at two times speed. Everything became this whole world of people that were asking these big questions that he didn't even know existed. And then on top of that, he started having friends that he worked with uh, who were gay and lesbian who would express to him how hurt they had been by the church. And Phil was saying, like, I, I didn't, they knew I was a Christian and they would tell me and then I didn't really know what to say or do. And then he said, and then the election of Donald Trump happened. And he said, when that happened, I'm now in Portland, and in Portland, you're not allowed to like Donald Trump, and everybody back home, like, loved Donald Trump. And what he was getting is at work, everybody was saying, if you like Donald Trump, you're evil, and everybody back home was saying, if you don't love Donald Trump, then, you don't, then you're not a Christian. And he said, at this moment, he would, he, there was nowhere he could go. And then he said, all this anxiety started rising, and he goes, and then I found weed. And he goes, that was awesome. Because all my anxiety was gone, all this stuff. And he's sort of, I'm sort of laughing with him, like awkwardly pastorally, like, ha, 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 you know, ha, ha, you know, because so he, he, we're sort of laughing about it. And then all of a sudden, I noticed in our conversation a total shift in the conversation. And it gets really serious. You can almost feel, you know when you feel the clouds come over and the temperature of the entire atmosphere just drops like five degrees? He goes... But the real thing that's hard for me is I've got all of these questions and I don't have anybody to talk to about it. And, and he puts, I, I could see a tear starting to come down his face and he says to me, and this was the moment, this was the, this is actually why I wrote this book. He looks at me and he says, I have all of these questions about God and the Bible and gender and sexuality. He goes, I've got all these questions. Am I still allowed to be a Christian? And the minute he said that, I knew I was not talking to a person. I was talking to a generation a generation of people who, unlike many of us, a generation of people that have the world in their pockets, who see Twitter, hap life happening in, around the world as, a moment, as it's happening, a, a world of people that have influences outside of the home and church in ways they never have, and they've got all these questions, and they have no idea what to do with them. And you, whether you know it or not, that story about Phil, and I'm going to come back to Phil in just a second, you have just been introduced. Welcome to deconstruction. Now, I'm going to tell you, it is really hard. I walked with Phil for about seven years. I'm going to come back to Phil in just a second. The problem with people who struggle with doubt and deconstruction is this. 
they really demand a lot of time and they don't tithe. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, have all, they have all the questions in the world, but, but they're not really like, they're not like all in. Like, okay, well, here's 10%. They're, and, and sadly, for a lot of us, for a variety of reasons, we're busy. We've got a lot going on. For a variety of reasons, you all have a fill. And I'm going to bet for many of you, Phil is like the hardest person to pastor. You don't know what to do with them because you're terrified if you say the wrong thing, you're going to push them further away, and you're terrified if you don't say anything that they're going to keep walking down the path towards destruction. And for many of us, when you think of your Phil, you have no idea what to do. And I want to walk you through how you can walk with Phil because Phil is not an abstract person. It is that college person in your church. It is the mom who walked away from her faith years ago. It is, it is, it is, this is a person you know. So I've got to begin with this idea, and, and here's, here's where I want to begin. And actually, forgive me, I want to get a little theological for a moment, because for Pente- for, I'm, I'm a Pentecostal, and I think that we should get theological. I think it's okay to be a th- theological. In fact, I'm a trained theologian, I have a PhD in theology, and I'm a Pentecostal, I speak in tongues, I believe in God with all my heart, I love the Bible, all that sort of stuff. And I don't think being a Pentecostal means you have to leave your brain in a doggy bag at the door. Amen. Okay, okay, so, so let's talk about theology for a little bit. Every single one of us, every single one of us is on what I like to call the theological journey. And really what that means is that this is just a really fancy way of saying every single one of us is in an increasing way growing in our knowledge of who God is. And not just growing in our knowledge of God, it can be the opposite too of devolving in our knowledge of God. But it's a lifelong journey of growing in our knowledge of God. And this, this experience, I'm going to bet if I asked you, is there anybody in the room who has the exact same theology today than you did 10 years ago? Would you raise your hand? Not one person. Now, somebody would go, well, that is horrible. You are all like un- changing sands with the winds of time. And, and actually, I would say that's a sign you're following Jesus. Is if you are never wrong, you don't believe in truth. You actually believe in yourself. The sign of following truth is that from time to time, you're wrong. I mean, read the Gospels, how many times the disciples are portrayed as being the guys getting in the way of what Jesus is doing. I did this experience. You know this. If you're preaching, you know this experience. Uh, I recently took all of my old sermons uh, uh, from a long time ago, and I put them in my Evernote files. And I was reading through my old sermons. And I was going through my sermons out of the book of Hebrews. I did a long series on Hebrews a long time ago. And I literally, I'm reading a sermon from like 12 years ago. And, and I, I blurt out loud. I'm so glad nobody was around me. I just blurt out loud as I'm reading this old sermon. I, I literally just go, I think that's heresy. <laughs> right? And I'm like, How? somebody let me preach that. And I was like, almost like, do I have an obligation to call everybody that was in the room that day and like tell you, I just so you know, that sermon was hot garbage. And I'm sorry, I ever, I hope you didn't build your life on it. You go, friends, that, that is, that is for any leader in the church, that's the theological journey. It's the journey of like you realizing over a, a lifetime that you're wrong. 
and, and what a gift it is. My, my friend, uh, Jerry Root, who teaches at Wheaton, he's the worldwide leading scholar on C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's like friends with Lewis's kids. He, I got to go to breakfast with him uh, and my son and talk to him about Chronicles of Narnia. My son at, at seven at the time had all these questions about Narnia. So to sit and watch the worldwide leading scholar with C, of C.S. Lewis with my son banter it out over Chronicles of Narnia was just, it was my, one of my highest moments in life. He said to me, he has this theory he says, the minute we enter heaven, we will enter the presence of God. We will, see, we, will, we will enter his glory, and we will see him face to face. And at that moment, when we see God, that we will look around heaven, and we will all say the same exact thing. We will all say this. We will all look around and say, Oh, that at that moment, it will all make sense. But until then, <laughs> until then, what does Paul say? Until then, we see imperfectly. But that moment, when we see God face to face, it will all make sense sense, the suffering, the pain, the joys, the children we didn't have, the marriages that didn't last, the, 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 it will all, at that moment, it will all be clear. And at that moment, we will go from having a theology of God to having an experience of God. One of my favorite thinkers is a guy named Karl Barth. That does not mean, by the way, you should go read everything Karl Barth wrote. A lot of his stuff was absolutely insane. But, but, I love this. Karl Barth was famous. He was a German theologian. He wrote a series of systematic theology uh, called Church Dogmatics, and it was 10 million words. And when Karl Barth wrote this, at the very end of his life, he was asked what his thoughts were about his systematic theology, which was 10 million words. And he is reported to have said he didn't even know what he thought about it because he himself hadn't read it. His point being that he had, he had given so much to reading, he didn't even remember everything he wrote. And near the end of his life, he was asked about what will happen in heaven. And he said, you know, there's going to be a moment in heaven where all of my theology, he says, in heaven we shall know all that is necessary, and we shall not have to write on paper or read anymore. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my books, the church dogmatics, over the growth of which the angels have long been amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper. And his point, what he's saying there, is he's saying at that moment, at that moment, heaven hear me loud and clear, heaven will be the great deconstruction where everything we thought we knew <laughs> wasn't what was. Madeline Lingle, who is one of my favorite writers, she wrote a book called <clears throat> An Irrational Season, The Irrational Season. She's incredible. She wrote, of course, a number of books that you've likely uh, heard of, one being uh, Wrinkle in Time. But she's, she's talking about marriage here, and she says, you know, when you think about a marriage, when you think about a marriage, it takes a lifetime to learn someone. And that is that you marry somebody, and you don't even know who you've married. I mean, it's a hunch. It's a hunch. That's all it is. It's a holy hunch. And then you marry them, and like a year later, you're driving with them on a road trip, and you look over, and you've had this moment. You look at me and you go, who did I marry? <laughs> who is this person? And what she's saying is that experience, that is what marriage is. It takes a lifetime to learn someone. 
you don't know them right away. And this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he's writing in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, for now, we see only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. But now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What he is saying here is he is saying the Christian life is a journey of over and over and over being wrong until glory. And it is only in glory, only in glory, that we shall see and be seen fully. John puts it this way, who was, by the way, the oldest apostle after the death of Jesus, says that when Christ appears, we shall see him as he is. And by the way, it's interesting in the Bible, when people see God's face in the Old Testament, last night Danielle was, talk, Danielle was talking about this, you know when people in the Old Testament say, I want to see, see your face, God, but they never say they want to see their face, and the reason is, why don't people want to see God's face in the Old Testament? Because people in the Old Testament that see God's face die. You cannot handle God's face. God's face is too much for you. And yet, something is beginning to change with Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, when you see God's face, you die. But now that Jesus has come, when people see God's face, he dies. And why that's important is beginning now in Jesus, God is beginning to fully reveal himself. But we're not there yet. And until we're there, it's fragments. Now, why, that's why is that important for us? Actually, I've got to pause and say this. Why this is important for us? as people that think about God, do theology, care about the life of the mind, is that if that is true, if it is true that life, the theological journey, is a journey of like mistake after mistake after mistake, of seeking to find Jesus, of moments of saying like, I've been wrong, I've repented, I believe in that now, the Bible Jesus, not the Jesus I made up in my mind, but the actual Jesus, those moments that we repent, that means as pastors, as leaders, we have got to build grace in not only for sin, but bad theology. And actually, here's the irony. There's a theologian named German uh, Tillichy who in 1962 wrote a book about this very topic, and he said, the irony, we are usually phenomenal as Christians at forgiving sins, but we are often absolutely atrocious and mean when it comes to bad theology. He says, I don't believe that God is a fussy fault finder in dealing with theological ideas. He who provides forgiveness for a sinful life will most certainly be a generous judge of theological reflections. And what he's saying there is he's saying, if we're going to be graceful and believe in forgiveness, then we better believe in a God who's going to make room for bad ideas because he loves us. And I don't know why, but there is a version of, and I am one of these, conservative uh, evangelical sort of traditions that like we are willing to forgive any sin, but the minute your theology is just off a teeny bit, get out of here. It's just the weirdest thing. There's grace in this stuff because the same you was not the same you 10 years ago. Thank God for grace. Not just grace for sin, but grace for forgiveness. And why all this matters is it's so, it's so cool how you have in the Bible, you have 12 disciples by name. There was a reader, I was, I was reading a, a, a New Testament commentator 
who was once saying, when you look at the history of the church, every single moment in the history of the church has needed to return to one of the disciples to relearn their lesson about Jesus. That there are moments in history, we've got to go back to Peter. There are moments that we go back to John. And I would argue at this moment in history, today, here and now, we have got to return to a disciple known as Thomas. Don't you dare call him Doubting Thomas. That's not his name. Don't get in the habit of calling people names that aren't their names. That's not his name. His name is Thomas. And he's one of the disciples. This is a, an ancient, I believe it's a, uh, something like an 11th century uh, portrayal of Thomas touching the side of Jesus. And I want to I I look at this guy because it turns out Phil is in the Bible. <laughs> Phil is in the Bible. Let me introduce you to the Phil of the Bible. His name's Thomas. Look at this. So the, the context, sorry, let me give you context. So Jesus... Thomas has walked with Jesus for three years, and Jesus, on a Friday, dies on a cross, Saturday is in a tomb, Sunday resurrects. After the resurrection appearance, the original resurrection appearance of Jesus, there is one of the disciples who was not there, okay? And this is how the story goes. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, if you have your Bibles open, circle that word, Didymus, we're going to come back to that word. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger uh, where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your, your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, when you look at the story of Thomas, I want you to see that there are three moments in Thomas's life. Three, I almost want to call them stages. Again, the, the theological journey. Uh, three moments in Thomas's life that you can discern in the text. The first is this. The very first stage for Thomas is this, is that Thomas, you've got to read this story in context. Thomas followed Jesus for three years. If that, again, I say that, let's dig into the, we, that, there's some hyperlinks there that we've got to go into. Think about that. For three years, Thomas saw Jesus cast out the demonic. For three years, Thomas saw Jesus raise the dead. He would have been there for the Lazarus story. For three years, Thomas would have seen Jesus give the most incredible sermons you've ever heard of. Ever, the, the Sermon on the Mount, ever heard of it? For three years, Thomas would have been in the room when Jesus gave people hope, when he freed the oppressed, when he fed 5,000. Thomas saw all of that. All of it. Now, Thomas is going to doubt. We call him Doubting Thomas in church history. He's often called that because he does go through, he does go through doubt. I don't want to call him that, and I'll tell you why at the end of the story. Don't call him Doubting Thomas. Don't fuse his identity with doubt. Because the minute you fuse a disciple's identity with doubt, where else are they to go? Don't call him Doubting Thomas. And I'd encourage you, that person in your church that struggles with doubt and deconstruction, don't you dare in your mind think of them as a doubter. Don't fuse them. 
but he does doubt. And why that's important for me, for you to see, there's three movements in his life. He follows and then he doubts. Is specifically important for a group of people like this who are charismatics, Pentecostals, who believe in the miraculous, the signs and the wonders and the gifts. And friends, I am in the room believing that stuff to be true. I have seen the miracles and I've also seen them sometimes not happen. I believe in the signs and the wonders with all of my heart. But here is our problem. We as Pentecostals think that the problem for people doubting is they need more experiences. Apparently, seeing the miraculous for Thomas is not a vaccine for doubt. And why that is so critical, you would not believe the number of young people I know who experienced God at a camp. They heard God's voice, they saw a miracle, they saw a healing, who are today, 10 years later, totally, totally disbelieving in God. If you think that experience is a vaccine for doubt, tell that to Thomas. You can walk through the miraculous and still doubt. Are you with me? There is a version, I, I'm, I'm going to name it, and I, may, I don't know if this session is recorded. I'm told it's not, but the last one was, so I'm going to be a little bit more vulnerable here. But there is a version of Christianity that creeps me out a little bit, where we think if we can just get people who are doubting into environments of the signs and the wonders that their doubts will go away. And I gotta say, Jesus made it very clear that a wicked, and a wicked generation is the one that seeks the signs and the wonders. We do not seek the fireworks. We seek the God of fire. Now again, I'm a, Pente I'm a Pentecostal. And I believe in that stuff. But don't for one moment think that you can see the dead raised and that means you're not going to struggle. Friends, I've seen the miraculous and I have gone through doubt myself. And, and so, in, in a way, I, I want you to see why Thomas walks through this. Like, what if you've experienced the miraculous, the healings, the teachings, why in the world, why in the world would you walk through doubt? And I think the way John has told this story masterfully, the literary structure and design of this story, is it's almost like when God gave it to us, he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I want you to see some details here. The first thing is this. Now Thomas, who was also known as Didymus. I'm going to give extra credit. Is there anybody in the room who knows what the word Didymus means? What's it mean? It means the twin. Why, Why John, does that matter? By the way, we don't have any clue who the twin is. Now, I will tell you, I have pastored some twins. Um, I have two twins that are students of mine right now. One is a Christian and one is an atheist. And the atheist student, who is actually, oddly enough, more interested in having office hour appointments with me than the Christian student, which kind of bugs me a little bit. But it's cool. I'm all down. I said to her, I said, why are you not a Christian but your sister is? And she sort of got funny and she goes, well, the answer is not what you want to hear. I said, what do, you, what do you mean? Because I think I was hoping for like a theological reason. And she goes, well, actually, here's, it's really simple. Like, when you spend your life being identified with the same person over and over and over again, you'll pretty much do anything in your power to do anything that differentiates you from somebody else. 
And her point was, honestly, I'm just not a Christian because I'm tired of being equated with my sister. I said, fascinating. There is something about being a twin that makes you want to be different. I don't know what it is, but when you're a twin, you don't want to be the same, even though you are. So I, I don't, I, again, I don't know, I can't read into this. I, I don't want to, but, but, but I do think it's interesting that he's a twin. I noticed this too. He was one of the 12. Again, he was in the room seeing all the miraculous. That's an important part of this story. Doubt does not come about by people who haven't had experiences. When I have a student who says, I would believe in God if God showed up in the room and made himself manifest, I want to say, that's not true. Tell that to Thomas. Notice this, that he was not with the disciples when Jesus showed up as resurrection body. That, I mean, it goes out of his way. He was not there. Now, having sat, I said, I started this whole thing by saying, I've sat in the front row long enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a suggestion to you. I often find that people who experience, and I'm going to define de deconstruction in a moment, because some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. I'll get to it. Trust me. But my experience is those that walk through doubt often experience seasons of doubt, and it is tied to the experience of perceiving having missed out on something. Let me give you specifics. The young person who went to camp and everybody else experienced the miracles, but they didn't. The person who is wondering why everybody else can get married when they can't, and they were told if they were faithful to God that they would get married by the time they were 22. The person who didn't get healed when their friend did. The person who can't have kids when everybody else who doesn't even want kids seems to be able to have them. The person who still struggles with sexual desires when all their friends claim to have been freed. This experience of missing out. And, and actually, when you zoom out, for some of you, when you zoom out, look, 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 look at what, <laughs> look at what Satan does in the Garden of Eden. Um, God tells Adam and Eve, he says, you can eat from any tree but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That means there's one tree they can't eat from, they can eat from any other tree. And when the serpent comes to the woman and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Do you notice he's insinuated and twisted it in such a way to make it sound like your God is trying to keep you from something? You notice that? The serpent twists things to make it sound like, in the words of D.A. Carson, he says, Satan is trying to make God sound like a divine party pooper. You're, your God's trying to keep you from stuff. And, and then the serpent says to the woman, he says to the woman, if you will eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly not die, which is interesting, that is the first doctrine in the Bible, that the that, that Satan uh, contradicts. It's the doctrine of judgment. No judgment. You do you. No judgment. 
And then he says, if you eat from the knowledge, tree of knowledge, you're going to be full. You will be like, like God. Go to Jesus in the desert. He's being tempted by the same serpent. And the same serpent comes to Jesus three times and says, I'm going to give you this, and if you do this, this will happen. You do this, this will happen. This thing, you do. And Jesus rebukes it. But notice one of them. The serpent says to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me. The serpent says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you the nations. Who already owned the nations. If you eat from this tree, you'll become like God. Who was already like God, made in the image of God? The dumb, the, here, the sound, it's kind of hard for me. I'm super ADD. Hearing, hearing all this stuff is really hard for me. But let me be as loud as, as crystal as loud as crystal. The serpent's greatest trick is offering us a gift of something we already have in God. And you hear it in his voice. You hear it in his voice. I have missed out. He thinks he missed out. He doesn't know the resurrected Jesus will return. He does not know that, but he thinks he missed out. And I will say, the demonic and the dark forces of evil love to, you and I have a word for it, they love to use FOMO to get us to think we have missed out when in reality, when you are in Christ, there is no missing out. You already have it. But the demo- listen to our culture's conversation about identity right now. Embrace your sexual desires and you will find yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is the echo of the serpent saying, you're not there yet. You're missing out. We're not missing out. We are already full in Christ. But he missed out. And it's going to be funny, by the way, when Jesus does come back, it says that he was with them for the whole week because he's not going to miss any meeting from that point on. He's going to every Wednesday evening small group. He's showing up to like alpha groups. He's, he's like breaking into council meetings. And then he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I will not believe. And this, there's been commentary after commentary written about this one line right here. Because what appears to have happened for Thomas is in this moment, he has decided what the contractual parameters are for how he will believe. I will only believe if X, Y, Z. And I hear this exact same spirit in the air today. And that is, I will love God if, da, 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 da. Um, God, if, if, if you will give me the, the marriage, the ministry, the children, the picket fence, if, then, I. And, it, and at the end of the day, it's the difference, it's the difference between a marriage and another kind of relationship. In a marriage, right, when you marry somebody, you say, I'm going to love you no matter what. I choose to willingly love you for who you are. Even in your brokenness, I love you. That is a marriage. 
And what Thomas has done here is he's changed from a marriage to something else. He is saying, I will love you if. And I got to tell you, those kinds of arrangements where you say, I will be in this marriage so long as uh, we share uh, everything, everything is the way I want it to be done. That's not a marriage. That's a prenuptial agreement. And what he has set up here is for himself a prenuptial agreement of I will love you, God, if. You know, I just taught, it was interesting, I just taught a class, uh, a university-level class on Bible sexuality and gender. And it was, it was one of the coolest classes I've ever taught. And I'll tell you at the very end why it actually worked out. Um, but I taught a whole class basically arguing that the Bible's right and we're all wrong. And I started the class by saying, everybody in this class, whether you're conservative, whether you're an atheist, it doesn't matter, progressive or not, every single person in this room is going to be offended by Jesus. We started the class, we went through the whole thing, and friends, it, it has become common stock for me to hear someone say, I could never believe in a God who, X, Y, Z. I could never believe in a God who thinks that way about sexuality. I could never think about it, worship a God that, that created hell. I could never think about a God that, and I understand our sentiments. We're saying, like, I have a hard time with those parts of God. But I've got to say, at what point in human history did we think God evolves to human opinion? And I'm not being, gosh, I sound like a, like a fundamentalist or something up here. And I'm not, but friends, to like love someone for who they are means you love them for who they are, not for who you want them to be. And he is saying, I will love you if, 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 if I can touch, if I can touch. When you look at Thomas, I think there are three things going on here. I said the first thing is he follows Jesus. In a way, that is what we call construction. And what we mean by construction, and by the way, I have a lot of problems with this paradigm, but I think it's helpful. But I, I think there's problems with it. So if you think there's problems with it too, welcome to my team. But I did come up with it. I think there's three stages. The first is what we call construction. And the basic idea of construction is this. Construction are those early years, those moments, our family of origin when we first got saved, when we begin to build our theology. Right? It was those early years when we were first handed the Bible. I remember when I first met Jesus at 16 years old, I went to a conservative Baptist church in my hometown. They gave me my first Bible. They made me memorize scripture, and I praise God for that. They taught me how to share my faith. They taught me about the Trinity. They taught me how to go to church. It was such an incredible experience for two years. Praise God. But unfortunately, there came a moment in my journey where I began to realize that some of the things that that church gave me also were not Bible. And that same community was a community that gave me the Bible, but they also basically gave me a view of women that said that women are footnotes in the history of the church. And that women are subsidiary, they're, they're parenthetical comments in the story of God. And I got to tell you, when I began to actually read the Bible, I realized they hadn't given me the Bible, they had given me bad theology about women. But they also gave me the gospel. Now, you want to talk about awkward. Because the same community that handed me so much good also handed me so much stuff that wasn't good. And here's the deal. That is all our churches. You give so much good stuff, but the truth is, whether you, whoever you think you are, you do give stuff that simply is not Jesus. You do, because you're a human. And there comes a moment when you begin to rethink the things that you were given. Now, construction means to build things. Deconstruction means to unbuild something. That's all that means. 
That's all that means, is it means to unbuild something, to undo something, to, 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 to in a way, demolish, to deconstruct. There, there's an image. This was, God rest his soul, Eugene Peterson, before he died, when he, uh, when in one of his books, he says, you know, it's a little bit like this. When you go to the hospital, when you go to the hospital, you go to the hospital for one reason. Why do you go to the hospital? You go to get healthy. But unfortunately, what happens sometimes when you go to the hospital? You get sick. And Eugene Peterson says there is a whole kind of sickness, a, a category of sickness called iatrogenic diseases, which are diseases you get at the hospital where you're trying to get healthy. And he says that is exactly what happens to all of us. And that is that the places where we were mostly healed are also the places where we picked up our sicknesses. And to me, that is totally the church. Okay, totally the church. The place where people meet Jesus is the place. And do you realize how difficult it is to navigate receiving the good and letting go of the bad? And, and my, my grandma would put it this way. Boy, you got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. That's hard work. But here's the thing. We think that deconstruction is like the end. And we're like, well, if somebody's questioning their faith and they're challenging things and I'm pushing back, clearly they're done with the church. And we completely forget there's a whole nother stage. There's a whole nother stage. If you think deconstruction is the end, you don't get the story of Thomas. Coming back home is like the theme of most stories in the Bible. The prodigal son, the book of Revelation, come back to your first love. Do those things you did at first. Coming back to God. But we make it sound like this is the end. And I got to tell you, when you shame people who are deconstructing, that's the message they get. That's the message they get. It's clearly, I'm deconstructing, so somehow I must be done. But we need shepherds and teachers that know more than that. That is not the end. Why? Okay, why did Thomas doubt? Deconstruction. Why do we see so many people deconstructing their faith? Let me deconstruct deconstruction for a little bit. Why do we see this happening? There's a couple reasons. Um, I can't give you all of them. And again, you could add to this so many different things. Uh, but for the sake of time, I can't go through everything that my brain has to say. Number one. I think a lot of people deconstruct their faith, largely because on some level, they have been removed from some environment in which previously helped their faith hold together. Meaning this, transitions, moves, and life change have a dramatic impact. That is, that is the story of Phil. Do you notice? Did you hear it in the story of Phil? He was in a church where he was known, and then he was in a city where he was not known. It's like moving it's like moving from your home church to Babylon and just sort of figuring it all out. Do you realize how hard that is? There's a, a, a woman, I encourage you to read this. There's a woman who taught at Gonzaga University named Patricia Killen. She was a scholar, a religious historian, whose entire area of scholarship, catch this, was she studied what happened to people's faith when they moved to the Pacific Northwest. 
And she studied, she wrote, if you want to read one thing, read her article, The Religious, uh, the religious, Hist uh, the religious Geography of the Pacific Northwest. And she says this, when people move from middle America to Portland, here's what happens. Few people come to the far west seeking what they left behind. They're usually leaving something behind. Most hold dreams of a better life, physical mobility, psychological mobility re reinforce each other. When people move west, they must choose to reconnect to social institutions to be part of communities. Having left one community, they find it easier to leave another and harder to reconnect. And what she's saying there is that when you have transplanted and left a community, it creates for you a sort of lubrication where it becomes easier and easier and easier to leave communities that you love. Her point being, once you do it once, it becomes really easy to keep doing it. Now that, I, heard, I said that yesterday and somebody's like, well, I'm a military family. Does that mean my kid's bound to not love Jesus? I said, no, 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 no. That's not what we're saying here. All we're saying here is that if you think moving does not impact somebody's faith, you're not paying attention to the human story. Mo there's a, a guy in Portland who models just brilliant. Uh, there's an evangelist in Portland. His entire ministry, he owns a moving company. You know why? Because he says when people move, they are at their most spiritually vulnerable moment. You think moving doesn't matter? Moving things, changing, going to a new university? Do you know what the experience is like being raised in a church where nobody ever taught you the complexities of how the Bible was put together? By the way, having spent a lot of time studying how the Bible was put together, I'm going to tell you right now. And by the way, the, is the Bible inspired? You bet your sweet bippy it's inspired. But do you realize how messy the canon process was of the Bible put together? It was not just, we think the Bible is just like, God wrote the NIV and it fell into our laps. <laughs> Thank God for the ESV. God, we are so grateful. Do you realize how complex this story is? And if you've been in a church where you have never been taught the complexities of how the Bible was put together, and then you take one Bible class at a major university... The, the impression is that you have been lied to your entire life. We've got to pivot. We've got to stop protecting our young from the hard conversations and start introducing them to the hard conversations. Meaning, I'm not, I'm not saying the Bible's not true. I'm actually saying it's because of its complexities. That's what makes it even truer. That's what makes it even cooler is how complex it is. It's messy. And the Spirit of God hovers over chaos. Societal and personal unrest. This is a really big one too. And that is that when, when society is changing, when things are changing, it makes it really easy. When, false, when the things that you used to love are no longer trustable. There's a guy named George, uh, George Hunter who wrote a book called To, Speak, uh, to Spread the Power. And he, he says, when you look in the history of the church, Almost all the great revivals, the, great, the second great awakening, when you look at all the great uh, uh, revivals in church history, they almost always come at moments right after a massive personal, a massive societal change. Listen to this. I, if I'm going to give you anything, this is the one thing I want, to, I want you to get, I want you to get inked, I want you to get it tattooed on your forearm in Hebrew. Okay? This is it. Get this tattooed on your forearm. Okay. Listen to this. Listen to this. Individuals who have recently lost faith in anything, a religion, a philosophy, a lover, a drug, a, dream, a drug, a pipe dream, a utopian promise, or in themselves, tend to look for something new upon which to norm and inform their lives. Listen to this. Listen to this. The missionary congregation should be constantly on the lookout for people who are, quote, between idols. 
People experiencing major culture change tend to be very receptive. Culture change takes a number of forms, such as decline in traditional values, changes in marriage, family patterns or values, uh, changes in kinship structures or patterns, a range of changes in a society's political system from being conquered to being liberated, from oppression imposed to oppression removed, from revolution to nationalism, all have contributed to the receptivity of people. Major economic changes, listen to this, this is literally what's happening right now. Unemployment, underemployment, runaway inflation, mergers, acquisitions, crop failures, plant closings, can't even get baby food, for heaven's sake. Plant closings have all shaken people's false securities and opened up to the gospel. His point is this. When things aren't working on a societal level, people's hopes are shattered, and they have to find something to hope in. And so, in a, in a positive way, that means that at a moment in history, I think people are really hungry for the gospel. In the negative, when you placed your hope and trust in a Christian leader, and they turned out not being the person you thought they were, when you put your hope in a church, when you put your hope in a denomination, when you find out your favorite preacher had an affair 20 years ago and never told anybody about it, when your favorite evangelist turns out owned massage parlors and abused women for years, I'm not saying any of this to shame anybody, but I'm saying that when you placed your hope in the church and the church didn't work out for you, you think that doesn't affect one's faith? And I know somebody's going to go, well, we're not called to have faith in the church. Don't get pedantic with me. Those things affect people's lives. Thirdly, church hurt and injustice. And what I'm saying when I say this is, friends, when Daniel Strickland's talk last night, good night, so profoundly important for our movement if we are a movement that is willing at any level to cover over sin, may we be judged. It doesn't matter how small or big that we would have a greater fear of God than of the media, than of anything. We will face Jesus someday. But when church, whenever there's a church environment that covers that stuff up, what it does is it sends the message that God is covering it up. And God does not cover over sin by blithely ignoring it. It must be named, confessed, and repented of, and there is endless forgiveness. But it must be named. You know, and I got to tell you too, there's, there's, a, but there, there's another side of this whole thing that's really hard. When you're a young person, you are taught that if you are a part of a system that's broken, you are complicit in the system. And I got to say, well, I actually think that's garbage. You know why? Jesus went to synagogue. Do you think Jesus knew the system was broken? You think. It turns out I'm willing to be a part of a broken system because if I don't stay in the room, I have no voice. So you can get all high and mighty like, well, if you're part of a broken system, you're complicit. No, actually, sometimes people need to stay in it because people matter a lot. And if we all left to go find a perfect system, A, tell me where it is. And secondly, can I remind you, a sheep is, a shepherd is willing to go anywhere to care for the sheep. 
So friends, the idea that to be a part of a broken system means that you're complicit, hogwash. Tell that to Jesus, who went to temple. He saw all the problems, and yet he loved the people in the system. And fourthly, I think people deconstruct, honestly, I think people deconstruct because of bad theology. That is that we were given lies. I was given two books when I first got saved. Two books. I was given the Bible and this book. Were you two? Inner healing, brother. Inner healing. And I got, I'm, not, I'm not, friends, I'm not belittling Joshua Harris, who, by the way, has done the right thing and recanted this entire book. And he's also not a Christian anymore, but he did recant this entire book. And I got to say, this book right here sent the message to my generation that sent the message to my generation that if you are faithful with your sexuality and never have mistakes, God is going to give you a perfect, awesome marriage. And I'm going to name that for what it is. That is the sexual prosperity gospel. And it is a, Caitlin Beatty, that's her line, by the way. I don't want to steal it. It, it, is, it is a manipulation. It is not the gospel. And it is not, it is not the gospel. It is a bad formula. My generation believed that, went off, got married, and found out marriage isn't everything that they taught you to be. And it's really hard. You want to know why my generation has rejected the purity gospel? It's this. We were given a lie. The greatest way for you to keep people from deconstruction is to have good biblical theology. <laughs> okay. So I've given you four main bad reasons why people, why people deconstruct. But can I still have ten? I still need, gosh, any more time. It's not just the bad stuff that makes people deconstruct. I got to tell you this too. I actually think, and this may surprise you, that people deconstruct their faith because honestly, they've had an experience of the living God. And that is that the sign that they've experienced God is everything they thought they knew wasn't what, they, what, what it was. And you know what this is? You know what this is? It's the story of Isaiah going into the temple and he sees God. And when he sees God, what does he say? He says, woe is me. <laughs> in Hebrew, he literally says in Hebrew, oy vey. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the glory. He has been shattered. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this. Uh, this was one of his favorite themes. He said, you know, actually, this is the mark of somebody who's experienced God. Uh, he's writing in his book, A Grief Observed, he's writing about his wife who had passed away at joy. And she died after nearly a year of marriage. They had just been married for a little time. And he, he talks about how he had this picture of his wife and how he's confessing. He says, I loved, I have this picture of my wife. I love my picture of my wife more than I loved my wife. And he says, I love the memory of my wife more than I actually love my wife. And he says, as C.S. Lewis always does, he, he connects it to like the Christian life. He says, that is totally what we do with God. He says, I need Christ not something that resembles Christ. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, an obstacle. Images of the holy easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it. He is the great iconoclast. Could not we almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. His point is that sometimes when you experience God, your theology is shattered. And that is the lesson, that is the lesson 
of the first and the second commandment. God says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, and I'm the one who saved you. Don't worship anything that looks like God. I am a theologian, and I will be the first to tell you that it is totally possible for somebody to love their ideas of God more than they love God. What do we love more? <laughs> Jesus or our ideologies of Jesus? And so if you ask me, is deconstruction good or bad? My answer is, it's a little Facebook. It's complicated. <laughs> because friends, when I'm sitting in my pastor, when I'm sitting in my office hours and I have a student who comes into my room who says, I love God with all of my heart and I want God above all things and I was given some horrible ideas about what it means to be a woman. And when a woman sits in my office and says, I want to love God, but I was given some bad theology and I want to say, you need to undo that theology, I would say, friends, that's not bad deconstruction. That is called repentance. By the way, the word repentance in Greek, metanoia, it literally means change your mind. Change your mind. But often I have students who come into my office who will say, Dr. Swoboda, honestly, I just think I'm done with the Bible. I think I'm done with faith. And when I dig deep enough, it becomes extraordinarily clear that at the end of the day, what they really want is they want to sleep with who they want to sleep with. And they want to smoke what they want to smoke. And when you say to me, is deconstruction good or bad? Do you see how complex it is? Because for one, it's repentance. For one, it's apostasy. How do we serve these people? Thomas does return. He does. Why? I, I need to know how much, because I had to start late because of the sessions this morning. If I was to go an, uh, 15 more minutes, do I have permission for that, or are you going to be mad, angsty? Okay, I'm going to ask if you need to leave, leave now, so that I can have 15 more minutes so there's not a huge group leaving. If you need to go, that's okay. Grace and love and mercy. Okay. okay. So is deconstruction good or bad? Here's the question. How? And for those leaving, thank you for being here. I'm not deconstructing my faith because you're leaving. How and why did Thomas come back? And what I want to do for a few moments is I just want to unpack for you what we can learn from the best pastor in the whole wide world. Who's the greatest pastor in the whole wide world? Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. I want you to see a few things. Look at this. First of all, <laughs> how long does Jesus wait to show up to show his scars to Thomas? How long? <laughs> a week. Do you get any sense from the fact that Jesus waits a whole week that Jesus is freaking out at all? Do you get the sense that he's like, I mean, do you hear any sense that, that Jesus is like, one of mine is doubting? Well, I got to drop everything I'm doing and He is a total peace. There was a book by Dallas Willard a number of years ago where he says, it's really interesting when you look at the stories of Jesus. <laughs> One of the unique marks of Jesus' ministry is how late he is to things. <laughs> he shows up late to almost everything. Do you remember the Lazarus story? 
He waits three days before he even shows up. And the, the sisters, like, rip him apart. Had you shown up, our brother wouldn't have died. And he's like, you guys don't get it. I know what I'm going to do even before I come. But he doesn't. He waits a week. Why? Because Jesus ain't freaking out over a doubter. And here's what happens when somebody comes to us in church and they come to us and they want to, they're all scared. They're like, I want to talk to you. There's some things at church that really I'm just struggling with and I'm struggling with my faith. And when they bring it out, all of a sudden we get all offended and we're like, well, that's not what I thought we were trying to do. And we take in their pain rather than calmly letting them have their journey. When you react to others' struggles, the message is sent that you are insecure and think God is not on the throne. Your greatest gift to a doubter is that you can hear every word they have to say with peace, joy, and calmness. Thank you for sharing your heart with me. Do you realize how powerful that is? That you are not reactive. Jesus doesn't freak out. And there's people all over the world shredding the Christian faith, and God is not killing them with lightning. God is emotionally stable. <laughs> he waits a week. Look at this. And Thomas was with them. And what, what does that mean? For one week, Thomas kept showing up to the people who did believe. I want, I want you to see two things in this. I want you to see, first of all, that the doubter has opted in this moment, even in their ep epistemic struggle, to bring themselves to the community of faith. I think this is why Thomas made it, because he kept showing up. But more than that, there is a community of people who have seen the resurrection who are making room for a doubter. They are not sending him to an alpha group. They're not sending him to the group of people who ask big questions. They're not, he's not like, well, you need to get into this you know, men's group that's dealing with these deep issues. They let the guy who's not believing stick around for a week because when you have a vision for human beings, you let them worship God in their struggles, out of their struggles, before their struggles, in the midst of their struggles. There is room for the doubter. And then when Jesus does show up, his first line is not what you'd think it would be. At no point in this whole thing does Jesus give an answer. There's no answer. He does not say, well, you need to, you know, I know you're struggling with doubt. You need to watch this Bible project video and, you know, sort of, and it'll sort of iron out. Let's, let's all put it on Tim Mackey and Preston Sprinkle and those people will all fix all of our doubt problems. Jesus doesn't give an answer. He gives something totally different. He gives something totally different. And what, what, it's interesting Peace be with you. Irene is a Greek word, peace. Look at peace be with you. Hold on to that for a second. Go to the book of Job. When you go to the book of Job, in Job 1 and 2, Job loses everything. And for the next 35 chapters, Job is writing a speech that he's going to give to God. And the speech is all these questions. God, where were you? Why are you? What are you? How are you? 
And by the time God comes to Job in Job 37 and 38, you are expecting Job to just rip God a new one. And God comes to Job. And you read the text, and you will notice something very odd. Job doesn't get one word in. There's questions, but they are from God to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, interesting. Where were you when I created Leviathan? Uh, Where were you when I set the sun in the sky? And here's the point. My friend, uh, a colleague of mine, Brian Doak at George Fox University, wrote his dissertation about this. Here's the thing. The book of Job does not explain suffering. There is no explanation for suffering in Job. And if you go to Job thinking it is a great funeral sermon, there's no explanation. The point of the book of Job is not that God gives answers. The point is not that God gives answers to sufferers. The point of Job is that God gives his presence to sufferers. Look at Jesus. Who is Jesus called in the Gospels? He's the prince of? Jesus is not saying tranquility be with you. He's not saying let your heart rate go down. He's not saying be be at peace. He's literally saying peace. The peace. The person of peace is in the room. The person who you serve who is asking all the questions more often than not is not looking for answers and YouTube clips. They are looking for you. They need someone to be with them. And when you send a message that says, well, just go watch this Preston Sprinkle video, it sends the message that it's all about answers. But for the person who's wrestling with doubt, more often than not, it is not an itch of the mind. It's an itch of the heart. Look at this. Then Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Touch me. Touch me. Which is really interesting because Jesus told Mary, when Mary saw Jesus, don't touch me. Now, how can Jesus be like, don't touch me, and then to another say, touch me? Here's why. Because different people need different things in order to experience the resurrection. Mary needed to hear her name, and the minute Mary hears her name, Mary, she believes. Thomas needed to touch. Every person needs a different kind of encounter with Jesus. Same Jesus, different touch. She, he needs to touch. And it is utterly remarkable that the resurrected Jesus comes out of the tomb with scars. He could have come out without. But he came out with scars. And why that's critical for us is that he, the resurrection life does not erase the pain of earthly life. It heals it. And he, in fact, the Orthodox, Orthodox Christians believe that when Jesus ascends to heaven, he ascends with the scars, and he does. And that right now the scars are at the right hand of heaven. And that when we die and resurrect, the one way we will know it is actually the God of the universe is that we have to ask ourselves the question, does the God have scars or not? Only a God with scars is a God who loves. When John says that he will wipe the tears from your eyes, you will see the scars very close. Touch the scars. The way Jesus ministers to the doubter is he lets them touch his scars. You have scars too. 
I want you to remember that time when you were 18 years old and you had a total crisis of faith and God met you. I want you to remember that time when you were really hurt by the church, but you decided, I'm going to keep loving God. I want you to remember your scars. Here's why. When you're with a doubter, you are going to offer your scars as an offering of love to people in pain. Do not miss hear me. I am not saying you get up on Sunday and tell people, I'm addicted to porn, I'm drinking too much, I've got a heroin problem. I am not saying that. There is a difference between ministering out of scars and open wounds. You don't minister out of open wounds. That needs counseling and his spiritual director, and friendship, and elders. But it, that is not, when you get up and air your dirty laundry, that harms people. You've got to remember, you, serve, you are shepherds. You serve sheep, not camels. It's not their job to carry your junk for you. But when you've gotten to a place where those wounds have become scars, I'm writing a book right now on sexual desire. It's going to be my next book. And I've got some parts of my story that are really painful around sexual desire. And i got to say, when I sit with a gay or a lesbian kid who comes into my office and they go, can you help me understand this? I have some stories as a way of saying, I can walk with you through this. Do you want to touch my scars? i got some scars for you. For the person in pain, they need somebody who's gone before them. Let them touch your scars. Let them touch your scars. And then Jesus says, hear me loud and clear. He says, stop doubting and believe. And too many pastors think we get to quote Jesus as our authority here. Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. You don't get to say that. When you tell a doubter, stop doubting, it sends the message that you are not welcoming them into the community. Jesus gets to say that. We don't get to say that. And there are moments when Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. But that is Jesus speaking that. Our job, as Jude 22 says, is be merciful to those who doubt. He worships. And that is ultimately the goal of the entire theological journey, is that we walk through the process as a way towards the experience of the living God. And Thomas here calls Jesus God. You're my Lord. You're my God. And Jesus, it should point out, this is a very high Christology moment. Jesus doesn't correct him and say, bro, I'm just a good teacher. He lets him worship him because he knew that he was God. And then look at this. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. In a movie, in a movie, when the actor looks at the screen when they're not supposed to, what are we supposed to, what do we call that? Breaking the, is it fourth or third? Fourth or third, one of the walls. It's fourth, I think it's fourth actually, sorry for the people who said third. Jesus, when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? You. You're in the Bible. The end of this story, do you know what happens to Thomas? This is the last we hear about Thomas. Do you know what happens to him after this? <laughs> Church history is the only way we know. Have you ever met a Christian from India whose last name is Thomas? 
I have three friends who are Indian Christians with the last name Thomas. Renji Thomas, Christy Thomas, uh, Ian Thomas. Their last name is Thomas. You know why their last name is Thomas? It's because Thomas, after this story, becomes the first missionary to go to India. And he goes and he starts a Christian community that has been worshiping Jesus for 2,000 years in India. And the heritage of 2,000 years of following Jesus in India, what an astounding heritage. All because a doubter was sent. We have got to stop seeing doubters as problems. They are our future missionaries. And when you have a long-term vision for these people, yeah, they don't tithe. And they need way too many coffee appointments. You don't know which Thomas will go to India. I'm looking good here. She's looking awesome. That's my wife, Quinn. This is my son, Elliot. He's 10. This is Faith. I want to introduce you to Phil. I took this picture six months ago. Phil just graduated from Portland State University, and he wants to be a philosopher for Jesus. And his faith is not perfectly ironed out. He's got lots of crazy ideas. He listens to too much Joe Rogan. He's all over the place. But he loves God with all of his heart. And I show you this picture as a way of saying this. You know, you look at that picture, and you can go, gosh, that's, that what a cute bow tie on the story. What you don't see are the thousands of dollars I spent on coffee appointments. <laughs> and what you don't see are the thousands of texts I received at 2 in the morning. And what you don't see is the endless investment I made in this young man. And the point is not to glorify myself. The point is to say, if you actually are willing to love even just one doubter, my gut tells me they'll stay in the room. But you have to be willing to have a bigger vision for people that are hard to pastor. And here's the greatest news in the world, is that when you love the fill, it's a gift to you. Because this guy, he has taught me to ask hard questions. He has pushed me. He's made me angry. But more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, because I know how to walk with this guy, I'm pretty well equipped to walk with this guy. I want you to see that person in your church as a graduate school course in loving your kids. Because your kids are welcome to a funky world. And when you love Phil, you're actually loving your kiddos. You know, I'll close with this because I've gone way over and they're gonna, I'm going to lose my honorarium if I don't finish. Um, <laughs> tomatoes. How many of you have been to Oregon before? We got some Oregon folks in the room? Okay, we got some Oregon folks. Okay, here's the deal. When you live in Oregon, when you live in Oregon, you have to have a reason to live in Oregon outside of just the weather because it rains like 900 days out of the year there. And so here's why I live in Oregon. I live in Oregon because of these. We grow these. These are our tomatoes in our backyard, our front yard. We have this urban farm. We absolutely love our tomatoes. And every summer, we'll grow these tomatoes. And we'll take these tomatoes, and when we have people come over for dinner, we'll take the tomatoes, we'll cut them open, we'll put a little salt on them, and we'll serve them. And very often, it's common that I'll serve the tomatoes, and somebody will say to me, well, I don't like tomatoes. 
And at that moment, flashing before my eyes are all the emotions that come with being a Christian right now. Because at, at this moment, it feels like to me, like everyone is walking away from religion. It feels like everyone is walking away from, from religion and they're all walking away. And when I serve those tomatoes, all of a sudden I have hope again and I'll tell you why. Because when I serve tomatoes and the person says I don't like tomatoes, I say I don't care. <laughs> you eat my tomatoes and they will eat my tomatoes and then they will look at me and they'll say those are tomatoes. And I'll say those are tomatoes. And, they, and you realize something. People don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes. And they've spent their life thinking they're, they're the exact same thing. And I think a lot of people right now are walking away from religion, not because they hate God, but because they're looking for God. And at this moment in history, don't assume the person asking questions is done. They may be wanting to come in. Are you with me? Okay. God, I've gone too long, and I'm sorry, but I ask that anything that was said here that was not good and true and Bible would just dissolve in the hearts of the people in the room, but whatever is true would stay and grow and become life. We pray for all the fills in our life. Jesus, be with them. And help us love them the way you, Jesus, shepherded Thomas. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for coming.